When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. When I think about misinformation or disinformation, I think about the ways in which early Jezebel treated women's media. Now, I mean, on the scale of things that are important to the survival of democracy, women's media is further down here <laughs> than, than, let's say, I don't know, uh, uh, national newspapers. But, um, well, at least I think so. I'm, I'm going to get yelled at. See, that's what's going to happen. I said that, <laughs> I'm going to get yelled at. But, what about Teen uh, Vogue? I can be the comment section for you, Anna. I'll be your bad faith machine. Thank you. Welcome to Offline. I'm John Favreau. I'm Max Fisher. And that was founder of Jezebel Anna Holmes and Crooked's own Aaron Ryan. The three of us had a great conversation about the influence and legacy of Jezebel, the pioneering feminist website that after 16 years of publication shut down last week. Uh, You'll hear that conversation soon. Max and I will also dig into how much Google pays to be on your iPhone, a new device that could spell the end of the smartphone. All right, I can't wait. And Ron DeSantis's fight with Nikki Haley about the right to post anonymously online. <laughs> but first, did Osama bin Laden have a point? This guy had takes. I'll give him that much. He did not have a point. But <laughs> there were dozens of TikTokers this week who asked some version of that question after their first time, I assume first time, reading bin Laden's 2002 Letter to America, uh, where he tries to justify 9-11 by critiquing the U.S. government for, among other things, its support of Israel. He also says, quote, the Jews have taken control of your economy, through which they have then taken control of your media and now control all aspects of your life. Precisely what Benjamin Franklin warned you against. (laughs) I know. Uh... I know you're, you're right, right now. You're like, what is going on? What are you talking about? Ben Franklin would have loved the caliphate. First he would of have all. loved the caliphate. Here is a sample of uh, of one of these TikToks. This morning, I read Letter to America, which is Osama bin Laden's letter to America, explaining why he attacked Americans. It's wild, and everyone should read it. If you haven't read it yet, read it. However, be forewarned that this has left me very disillusioned. And I feel the same exact way I felt when I was deconstructing Christianity. I feel uh, a little bit just confused, like I have entered into another timeline. What is this? And yeah, so go read it. Yes, you have entered into another timeline. That timeline Uh, is 2002 when the letter came out. (laughs) Um, Okay, so... The, all of the TikToks or a lot of these TikToks are like eerily similar, mm-hmm. right? Which is just, it's like, that's the meme, that's right? How it works. So it's like a setup, sure. right? Yeah, so I don't right. think there's anything uh, 
weird about that. Uh, that's one thing that's not weird in all of this. <laughs> some of them have someone, uh, this is a TikTok thing, and they're they're looking, and they're it's like me in 2011 when we got Bin Laden, and they're like jumping up and down, and then they're like me now reading the letter, and then they're just like, <laughs> whoa, mind is blown. I can't believe this. And then people are like re-questioning their lives, and they're having existential crises. This is like, this is the, the tenor of most of the videos. Right, and a lot of them telling you like, wow, I didn't, the media told me that Osama Bin Laden was bad, but I read this letter and y'all, you will not believe <laughs> the truth bombs being dropped. <laughs> he was a real one. <laughs> you got to go check it out. This is blowing my mind. Okay. And it just... <laughs> I just, I, I mean... We both watch way too many of these, yeah, first we've, of all. We've literally spent all day doing That's this. That's right, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sad to admit. Um, all right, a few things to unpack here, Max. <laughs> just a few. What, what happened to us? Yeah, what happened to us, number one. First is something that you and I have been trying to figure out all day, like... How many of these videos were there? What actually made them go viral? Right. So there's a little bit of a point of contention here about how much of this is a real trend versus how much of it is it just like a few select people who like were trying to edge Lord and like wildly missed the mark. We should say just at the, at the outset that some of the reaction, a lot of the reaction online mm -hmm. on the Internet mm -hmm. was like, Gen Z is lost. TikTok has brainwashed them all. It's all over. What are we going to do? Hyperbole leads to hyperbole, yes. leads to crazy backlash. And, 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 and to... we are not there. But why don't you? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll arrive at some, some bad takes, I'm sure. Just saying that here in case someone clips me the wrong way. <laughs> so you have to like understand how real this is. You have to kind of like unpack like how it came to go to come to everyone's attention in the first place. So on Wednesday evening, a guy named Yashar Ali, a journalist, tweeted out a compilation of like 10 or so of these that he had clipped, like highlighting the trend, basically, and posted it to Twitter X. And of course, it went extremely viral. Um, but in a way to like highlight or to like understand how how viral these TikTok videos actually were, this um, tech blog called Forful Media looked it up a bunch of the videos on Wednesday night. They pulled up everything under the hashtag that a lot of these people were posting to, and they found that all of those views total had 1.3 million views as of Wednesday night. And Yasha Arli's tweet highlighting the videos had 8 million views. Yeah. So that's 6 that really to 1. That really sent it... Uh sent it super viral right right so it's, it's just to say that the like even when it first started the people like us who were like outraged at it or like what the hell is this outnumbered the people who were actually watching the videos by six to one a real streisand effect it's a, right a huge streisand effect and but it's also been huge on google trends and has really picked up on that since Yashar Ali's tweets but was big before then a lot of these tiktok videos referring to the letter pointed to um, a Guardian post that had posted this letter back in 2002. It's like the one easy place on the internet to find it. And the Guardian reported getting like 100,000 views before Yashar Ali's tweet. So there was real interest in it, but it's now like picked up a lot of just people laughing at it. Yeah, and we should say that, you know, the uh, the old internet, the Guardian, just a, just a website. Uh, it <laughs> yeah. was the number one trending story on the Guardian website. Right. And so this did, and that started happening on November 9th, the traffic started. So this has been going, this has been brewing for a couple weeks. Right. And although it's, it's wild that you can be the number one thing on The Guardian, a huge newspaper, and not even in the top 100 trends on TikTok. Right. Yeah. Cause that, well, that's, and that's the thing is like you hear 
So say there were, we don't know, were there hundreds of these videos on TikTok? Were there thousands? Somewhere between hundreds and thousands. And like you said, the the one that had the most views was one million, right? right? And in TikTok world, that is not, relatively speaking, that is not a lot. Right. Um, it's more people than you want hearing about how smart Osama bin Laden was. Well, I was going to say. <laughs> so like, even if there were only a few hundred that were like thousands of times, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. So, Okay. The way that I would thread the needle on this is that I agree with some of the people who have been skeptical of like the Yashar Ali framing that this is a huge trend and that maybe this is not that popular and only really blew up because someone noticed it and called a ton of attention to it like Streisand affected. But I think that this episode is getting so much attention from, you know, not just to us, but from like it's getting covered by a bunch of media organizations and everybody's talking about it. I think because... Not just the videos themselves or even just because it's like a shocking and weird and wacky story, but because I think it feels representative of what so many of us sense TikTok has become and what its role in our culture has become. And I'm not referring to the like Fox News, Josh Hawley thing saying that like TikTok is radicalizing our youth into joining Hamas, which, you know, we talked about last week is bullshit. But what I mean is that I think we all sense that TikTok has become overwhelmingly a place where It's influencers trying to win attention and to ride the algorithm by taking whatever is the biggest topic on the platform that particular day. Right now, we know it's Israel-Gaza. And then just trying to outbid each other with the most salacious, the most radical, the most extreme take in whatever direction they think the audience wants. And that clearly led some of these people to saying Osama bin Laden is great. But that's happening with every topic all the time. Right. And again... Plenty of independent journalists and content creators on TikTok that are not doing this, that are doing really responsible work. Of course, of course, yeah. And informing us, like we we know all that. What's happening is, just like on Twitter, just like on Facebook, just like on all these social media platforms. Incentives are bad. The incentives are bad and the extremes, whether it's like the extreme misinformation or the most polarizing content or the most emotional content is, is what we're hearing about. Right. I mean, that, in this case, it's like jumping between platforms, right? Because this is a big thing on Twitter after it was a big thing on TikTok. I, I will just say too, like Osama bin Laden, not great. Not good. <laughs> not no. a great person. Yeah. But here's, it's, if you are, and a lot of these folks who are putting these videos up uh, were quite, are quite young. Yeah. Like Gen Z, yeah. right? Yeah. Now again, plenty of boomers on Facebook, uh, have, you know, getting <laughs> caught in a lot of misinformation, yeah, spreading sure. a lot of misinformation, some bad takes. Yeah. right? It's bad takes. It's, it's again, it's not necessarily an age thing, but in this instance, if you were Gen Z, like you don't have a real good memory of nine eleven mm-hmm. and the aftermath. And so maybe you didn't read any of bin Laden's writings <laughs> or many critiques of foreign U.S. foreign policy right. that have been very similar I think to bin thing. Laden's letter. Because yeah. my point is like, there's nothing interesting in bin Laden's letter. A lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of right. virulent anti-Semitism, homophobia, all kinds of horrible shit. But even if you take all of that out and you just leave the critique of U.S. foreign policy that a lot of people have Mm -hmm. and especially with regards to support for israel like it's just not interesting right like you could find it in any book anywhere and there's this whole like the government (laughs) doesn't want you to know know this and how we've been told for so many years that they hated us for our freedom it's like no george w bush told you that because he's a fucking idiot right Uh, Right. but it's like at the time and ever since 
lots of people. The mm-hmm. Iraq Study Group report, the yeah. 9-11 Commission report, all of these things. Like, and by the way, if you want to read Bin Laden's writings, because the Guardian then took the took the letter down, yeah. and TikTok removed all the videos, mm-hmm. um, which They're not I, I don't know why. Inter- yeah, it it's seems just going to make it worse. It's gonna, it, and it did make it worse, because yeah. then people are like, they, the government has been taking it down <laughs> in the Western media because they don't want you to know. It's like, you know where all of Osama Bin Laden's writings are? On U.S. government websites, yeah. you can go find them. Well, the so, go- <laughs> so the, now, and then the, everyone's gonna be like, "Does that mean he was in cahoots with?" <laughs> <laughs> he was an asset. Yeah, right. So something that was funny about uh, maybe funny is not the right word was striking mm-hmm. about reading the 2002 Bin Laden manifesto, which I unfortunately did, is that between the like calls for mass murder, the like critiques of U.S. foreign policy are completely banal and like pretty boring, and that's actually something that is like standard for extremist group propaganda is you drop in a lot of reasonable things. So then people do exactly what some of these TikTokers do, which I'm not suggesting that they've been like radicalized, but people look at it and they say, I heard this group was crazy, but look at all these reasonable things that they said. So like, it's actually fine. Right. And like, I don't justify what they did, but they made a point. Right. And it's like, no, 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 you don't need, you don't need them in the <laughs> equation. I mean, it is, I think, partly the result of our intense focus on like identity in the age of social media and not on like debating ideas because the, the it's fact like that these ideas like came from this, a forbidden this source. horrible person right. said it said something that i actually agree with therefore maybe mm-hmm. maybe they're more on my team than i thought right right and not just like who the fuck cares what osama bin Laden like regurgitated a bunch of critiques of u.s foreign policy that have been around forever well i think it also speaks to your point about if you are a young person who has never encountered any information about the world before the year 2010 because like again the, his like kind of banal critiques of u.s foreign policy like you and i have both been much harsher about the global war on terror right, than right. <laughs> like this letter was yeah and the thing that was so striking to me about seeing tiktokers be like having their mind blown at the idea that maybe American military deployments in the Middle East have some downsides to them. Is it like, and I think this is part of why it resonated, is I think that this speaks to a sense a lot of us have that like a lot of young people today, I'm not saying everybody, I'm not saying the entire generation, but a lot of young people like just don't know that much about the world except for what they learn on TikTok. Right, which is, I mean, again, there is some great information you can get on TikTok, but also if you are looking to understand 9-11, 9-11, the aftermath, mm-hmm. the Iraq war, there's plenty of resources and outlets that are like a lot more trustworthy than whatever shows up in your algorithm. And that's not to say that what shows up in your algorithm isn't entertaining or often informative or often thought provoking, but like if you really want to learn, there's plenty of resources out there. Yeah, I, I it's... It's good of you to make sure that we make face for the people who are using TikTok for good because they are definitely there. But I have to say, like, just based off things like the experiment last week of reading about Israel, Palestine, Israel, Gaza on TikTok, I don't think it's a good place to go as like a primary source to learn about. <laughs> oh, something. no, not a primary source. Yeah. And it's happening. I mean, this is right. why it's not right. It's not great. And I think that I obviously most kids who are using TikTok are not like learning that Al Qaeda was good and they were right. And we're going to go like do the caliphate now. Yeah. And like we're, no one's taking a poll in a month and being like, oh, gosh, <laughs> Osama bin Laden approval among 18 to 29. Is good. Like that's it's not going to happen. It's 
not gonna happen. Come on, somebody's got to run that. I, I love a troll poll. Uh, I feel like what happened to troll polls? Troll they were so big in the 2010s. What was it? PPP used to run P- polls yeah, like yeah, this. You, you would get seven percent, like, said they like Bin Laden, and then we yeah. would have a whole news cycle about yeah, it. That's, that's Man, basically bring, what this was. That's that, we just did, did it. That's yeah. true. We just did it. But it went. It's also an example, I think, of just the the power of outrage to drive attention and yeah, that's absolutely. not just about the the, right. the original hundreds thousands whatever tiktokers who are saying yeah give this bin laden guy a try it's all the outrage that we have now all right. done for all day right. and like right. the right. white house put out a statement i know <laughs> the white house put a statement. cnn covered it like it's it's all major media I know. outlets i know we're all and like we're playing into dignifying it i know i like to think we're just that trying we're to explain like, what's happening here right <laughs> Right. And it definitely there is a lot of like, I don't know. And it's this weird cycle now where it's like it was pretty small at first and now it's getting so much attention and condemnation that it's like you're saying now it's become a forbidden thing that everybody like I'm I looked it up, you know, a lot like you looked it up, you know, the other night. Like we're all like kind of like what's going on? I want to look into this. One more point on this and then we will we will move on. I promise. (laughs) It's a point about propaganda, which Mm. is like I think what people might not realize is. One of the things Osama bin Laden did all the time in Al Qaeda was to push propaganda. Sure. (laughs) And we are very willing to believe that, like, uh, you know, Fox News, sometimes the U.S. government, sometimes the Israeli government, right? Like, what's up, propaganda? Guess what Osama bin Laden was trying to do? Spread propaganda. So it's like, if you're going to be skeptical of things you hear from the government, (laughs) at the very least, at the very least, be skeptical of what you might hear from terrorist mastermind of some of it. Well, I think the the one last thing that I would add is that like we talked about like is this real viral? Is it fake viral? And I think it's like a little bit of both. The yeah. whole thing actually really reminds me most not of like ISIS propaganda getting exaggerated by the Facebook algorithm in the 2010s. It really reminds me of the flat earther trend on YouTube. Hmm. Did you follow this? No. So uh, as of 10 years ago, nobody believed in flat eartherism. And then at some point, the YouTube algorithm started promoting videos that had flat earther theories. And if you were on YouTube in like the late 2010s, you would see them everywhere yeah. because it was just like a salacious thing. And you were like, flat earthers, that's crazy. <laughs> I'm going to click on that. Uh... And then all of these creators started making like, Flat Earth, what's the truth videos? Because they would get a ton of views. And like the youth of America were not radicalized into flat eartherism, but it is way up relative to the baseline of zero. And there've been like a few celebrities who got pulled into it. They're like flat earther conferences. Are you saying if we cut this conversation down to a tight one minute (laughs) that our what's going on with Osama bin Laden content is going to get a lot of views? I just mean that like, (laughs) I think that we are right to treat this as like, a nonsense fringe thing that is not, yeah. you know, the vast majority of people who see it are going to laugh at it or they're going to swipe through it. But when you are dealing with tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, something that we have learned from the flat earther effect on YouTube, which is very well documented, is that that can convert people. Yep. And kids just, you know, find some good information. Yeah. Just double check. Yeah. Double put, check. Put down the phone. You can learn a lot about the US foreign policy of the world, not from terrorists. You can read a book. <laughs> So what's the what's the reading rainbow reading theme? Ra- yeah. <laughs> check it out it's in a book yeah, it's not on tiktok <laughs> <laughs> wow 
That was cool. All right, moving on. Everybody in the studio is grimacing right now. Yeah, no, it's uh, awesome. (laughs) Looks like he wants to leave. Uh, All right, moving on. Some news this week out of the ongoing Google antitrust trial. Uh, While testifying in Google's defense, University of Chicago professor Kevin Murphy let slip that in order to remain the default browser on Apple products, Google gives Apple a 36% cut of all search ad revenue that comes from Safari, which in 2021 alone would have amounted to $18 billion. Max, why was the release of this number such a big deal? So the the Google le- Google's lead lawyer apparently visibly cringed when this information came out, which it was not supposed to. I saw, yeah, that was- and, which is never good. That's never what you want <laughs> you from your legal defense. Yeah, you never want it written in the newspaper that he was cringing. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the fact that they were paying eighteen billion in just this one year, and are probably paying maybe even more in subsequent years. Although that in itself is really significant because what it says is that if you want to have a viable search engine today, the barrier to entry is $20 billion a year to Apple to get access to consumers, which basically means you can't launch a search engine, which is a like giant flashing neon sign that says that Google has a monopoly. But I think the really damning one is the fact that they were that 36% number that they had a deal to give 36% of their revenue, which is huge back to Apple, because it suggests that if they're giving over a third of their revenue to Apple just to be on the phone, it suggests that over a third of the value of Google search doesn't come from the product. It doesn't come from uh, what it's yeah. doing for consumers. It comes from the fact that it has this dominance over the search bar. And it suggests that their business model is not one just of delivering a good product, but it's one that is now hugely focused on maintaining that control of your iPhone. With which money. Again, right, with money, which is monopolistic. Right, which is probably why we got the wince. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So we'll see, so, we'll see how that trial goes. Yeah, but so far, not so good. It's not looking good. Yeah. All right. So Google isn't the only tech giant under threat. Well, kind of. Uh, this week, Humane AI, it's a new San Francisco-based startup, released a new piece of tech that's been called the device that comes after the smartphone with a mission to, quote, liberate the world from its smartphone addiction. <laughs> I mean, right? I, is, it, is this for us or what? I cannot tell you how skeptical I am that they are making a <laughs> internet smartphone device to free you from your smartphone. Come on. So here, here's, here's, we'll describe it for folks. The device is a $700 AI powered pin that you place on your lapel or really anywhere you want, uh, and is used via... V- <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> well, they were showing that on the, in the video that some people put it on their bags. Oh, okay. In your okay. purse, you can, I don't know, you okay. put it on your head, whatever. You can get uh, creative. Yeah, and it's, it's used via voice command or a hand-gestured controlled laser display projected onto your palm. So you're looking at your palm, you're opening it up, and there's like, it's basically your screen on your hand. My body is a screen. Yeah, right. The company's founder calls the experience screenless, seamless, and sensing and claims it allows users to be more present in their surroundings than their current smartphones. <laughs> Go watch the video. There's like a there's sure. like a 10 minute intro video. Um, just if you're interested, it's, it was sort of interested. It was a little slow. I was like, okay, let's get to the point. Um, what do you think about this? You so I am trying to turn off the cranky part of my brain that is just having a visceral reaction against <laughs> the idea of another device and this one that is blending seamlessly into my person. Uh, I don't know if I want to become RoboCop, but if if I could turn that off and look at this objectively, it seems like it's an Alexa pinned to your shirt, basically. And I think if yeah. you really like Alexa... Or Siri. Yeah, or Siri or any of the It's other... like if your phone was just Siri with no screen. Exactly. And, and yeah. anytime you need to see something, it would just show you on, on your palm. Right. Um, but it's like... 
play some music and it plays music in like a small little bubble around you that only you can hear but then if you want to make it louder it gets louder and that's kind of cool i was watching the video and it's like so you can obviously you text people right so you can mm -hmm. say like tell andrew i'll be there later tonight and then they said andrew i'll be there later tonight that's what the voice says and then he goes make me sound more excited and then it goes andrew i'll be there tonight can't wait and like send and i'm just like <laughs> that is a lot of steps yeah where you could just be like typing faster yeah you or, know? or you could just use your own voice too <laughs> <laughs> well that's my other problem with and this is why i don't i don't use siri yeah. often i don't or really either i know a lot of people who do yeah but part of the reason i don't is just because if you're around if the whole point here is let's get off our screens mm -hmm. let's have more connection with each other but we're all walking around talking to ourselves. <laughs> like, hey, yeah. I got a thing to do. And hey, and I'm going to, hey, text Austin while I'm talking to Max. And like, it's just not. Right. That's, that worries me about it. Yeah. I think that the we're going to reduce your screen time pitch is somewhere between disingenuous and optimistic. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I think the two models of this are basically it's, it's either going to be Google Glasses or Apple Watch. Google Glasses being the like, we have this cool technology and you're going to love just having the tech around you so much. You're going to buy our expensive product. No one bought it because it didn't do anything that useful. Or it'll be Apple Watch where it does do useful things and that's helpful. And I have a, I know a lot of people who have an Apple Watch. They love it. But they all, almost all of them say the exact same thing to me, which is it makes them spend much more time on their phone because it makes them aware of like emails coming in or texts they're getting. So what do they do? They pick up their phone right. to answer it. I thought the translation uh, option is cool. That's like cool. You, That's cool. You, you talk to someone speaking a different language, yeah. and then it just starts translating it in real time between the two of you via the voice on the on the pin. Um, so if that's that, kinda, if that works, that would be really cool. That's cool. They, they use an example of like the guy's holding some almonds in his hands, and mm -hmm. he just said, "Hey, uh, what's the how much protein is in these almonds?" And they just tell you <laughs> just from like seeing the number of almonds in your hand. That seems like a very narrow use case. Right. <laughs> and you can be, and then, well, then you eat them, and then it, right. it says, enjoy your almonds. And then it says, um, and then you're like, how much protein have I eaten today? Or like, yeah. what's my nutritional cut? Yeah. So there's like, like stuff like that. I don't know if that's necessarily the, the diet tracking that could be. I use like the health app. I mean, this is, again, it's like Google Glasses. The demo had so many things that looked very cool in the demo, but it's this question of like, okay, is that actually going to plug into my life? Or is it just if I do exactly specifically the things in the Google demo exactly as they right. did it, it'll work? I thought that like I was I was interested in the taking pictures and videos while you stay in the moment, right? Because if it's like on your lapel yeah. and you're just walking around, you're just like that's terrifying. You, a little bit, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if I love that. <laughs> it's like you're talking to someone, like is that your fucking lapel on? Is that videoing me or what? Uh, no, I mean, how much of our culture now is like has adapted to the rise of the smartphone by all of the like norms and awareness we have around people when they're holding their phone in a specific way that says they're going to take a picture? Like we're right. very sensitive to that. We want to know when someone is taking a picture or video of us. That's yeah. important to us. Yeah, that is true. So maybe that's not as uh, maybe it's staying in the moment is not that important. It's going to be like when you you uh, ten years ago people started putting. Um, post-it notes over the camera on their laptop now you're going to carry around post notes to put it over people's ai pins <laughs> yeah so i don't know i don't i'm <laughs> count me skeptical about the ai pin. okay okay but i'm we'll curious i'm knows? curious i'm very curious next to see year we'll be doing this and uh we'll both have our AI via, pins via ai pin hologram all right finally ron DeSantis and nikki haley got into a twitter fight this week over the god-given right to post anonymously <laughs> on the internet 
the core of the Republican Party cultural platform now is posting. So, <laughs> I mean, it's like a top issue. It is, yeah. So Haley gives some interview. She says that allowing people to post anonymously is a national security threat. Uh, you know, that it's Russian bots and Chinese bots and Iranian bots. Yeah. Ron DeSantis, he's looking for attention. Yeah, boy, is he. He's, he's <laughs> slipping in the polls. He comes out aggressively in defense of the trolls, and he tweets this. You know who were anonymous writers back in the day? <laughs> so Alexander stupid. Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison when they wrote the Federalist Papers. <laughs> they were not, quote, national security threats, nor are the many conservative Americans across the country who exercise their constitutional right to voice their opinions without fear of being harassed or canceled by the school they go to or the company they work for. All right, whose side are you on? <laughs> you, t- you with DeSantis or you with Nikki Haley? So my, I, I'm against both of them. Uh, you were going to be shocked to hear. Yeah, I thought we were going to get that clip so we could get it. <laughs> so I think Nikki Haley is proposing this for made-up reasons and Ron DeSantis is opposing it on made-up grounds. Her whole case that, like, we're going to get the bots off because the Iranian bots need to be anonymous, it doesn't make any sense. And also, like, we have a real name-use platform. It's Facebook. And it is full of, like... Uh, not all the time, but it's a wonderful like, place all the time. It's a wonderful place all the time. Has had a lot of foreign influence operations on that platform. Famously was the center of it in 2016. <laughs> although I'm sure Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis would not be the first people to acknowledge that. <laughs> so like real name does not address the thing that Nikki Haley says she wants to address or said she wanted to address before she rolled it back and then said that she only wants anonymity for Americans and not for the nefarious foreigners. I I do believe in free speech for (laughs) Americans. They can be anonymous, but the Chinese bots, absolutely not. I want your names. Nikki Haley bringing moderation in. Um, And then Ron DeSantis is opposing it on made up grounds and that he's kind of pretending that this is like the Chinese version of real name policy, which is where you have to use your ID to sign up for it. And it's like very invasive. But like we've been on Facebook, unfortunately, and it is not a horrifying invasion of free speech. Like it's not it's not destroying our ability to discuss, unfortunately, our ability to discuss politics. Also, there was another platform that had a verification (laughs) Uh, system. It was uh-huh. called Twitter. <laughs> and now, what happened with that? <laughs> well, now it's just uh, if you if you paid if you paid the. Uh, Where's your blue check these days? It's still there. Is it still there? I haven't paid a okay. cent. Okay. I haven't paid a cent. I'm. I, look, Elon. We didn't even talk about this, but Elon <laughs> Musk this week. I know there was like some real anti-Semitic garbage yeah. Yeah. that uh, some like, blue checkmark account was tweeting, and then it, it was basically like great replacement theory. Yeah. Uh, kind of stuff and Elon Musk was like you speak the truth yeah. uh, that is the truth and now there's like advertisers pulling ads from it and it was he, just as we're continuing the descent down and, it, well, and he got disinvited from the the APEC is it the APEC the Asia Pacific yeah. Economic Cooperation the, the like huge international forum but DealBook still has them on which, yeah, which <laughs> is of course, kind of funny maybe, maybe <laughs> re- rethink that they had Sam Bankman fried on like during the FTX uh, collapse wow Okay. Well, there you go. What do you think about verification systems in general? Like, do you think that there's not that like no anonymous posting, but is there a way to sort of um, sort of cut down on not just bots, but like the sort of trollish accounts? I mean, this was a huge thing in the like late 2000s and early 2010s where we were like the Internet was becoming at the center of our society. And 
like that was what led Facebook to adopt real name. And it was very controversial at the time. And I think the effect is just not cut that hard in either direction. It's still pretty easy to set up fake accounts. It's still pretty easy to be an asshole. People are still assholes under their real names. That's the that's the real. Yes. I, people are assholes under their real names. Yeah. I mean, they'll, I, give, I, they'll give you their address and they'll right, <laughs> say, right. I'm an asshole. Come find me. Here's my social security card. And here's a <laughs> racial slur. <laughs> <laughs> that is what we get. That is what we get. And I, I, I have not seen this actually comprehensively studied. I, I get the sense anecdotally that it cuts down a little bit on the toxicity. You know, platforms like Twitter are worse for a number of reasons. The anonymity is probably one of them. But I think the reason that we ended up basically not pushing too hard in one way or another is that it just doesn't make that much of a difference. And, the, you know, there's only one country in the world, China, that has... ID backed real name verification because it is such a privacy nightmare. South Korea had it for like three years and the Supreme Court struck it down because mm. they, they deemed it such an invasion of privacy. So I think that what we have is basically what we're going to get for account verification. I agree that something like rolling out something universal like what Twitter has would be great to get to eventually, but you need a long term, long lasting platform for that. And they're just all too unstable. You know who wasn't afraid to post in his name? Osama bin Laden. <laughs> That's true. That's where we're going to end. Uh, all right. Some quick housekeeping before the break. We are closing out the year with two final live shows of Pod Save America. You can catch us in El Cajon on December 7th or San Jose on December 13th. Get your tickets now at cricket.com slash events. And if you are already feeling queasy from the 2024 polar coaster, don't fret. We can help you turn that anxiety into action. Join the Vote Save America community for all the tools you need to take action in this presidential cycle. From volunteer opportunities to making sure you're registered to vote, head to votesaveamerica.com to find out how you can get involved. All right, after the break, my conversation with Anna Holmes and Aaron Ryan. Offline is brought to you by Karayuma. Karayumas have been our go-to sneakers for a while now because they're really comfortable, go with everything, and they're made with consciously sourced materials. I love and wear Karayuma sneakers all the time. I have so many pairs. They are very comfortable. They look great. Highly recommend. Last year, we collaborated with Karayuma to create No Steps Back sneakers, and we can't believe they have now designed a second limited edition collaboration with us. Get ready for it. The Love It or Leave It sneaker. Yes, which are selling fast. They're selling so fast. The design's really cool. You should go check them out. They got all kinds of stuff on it. Punted on a surfboard. That's just could one. Be That's any, just it could one, be any dog. One thing. Could be any dog. Plus a, a great portion, design. Plus a portion of the proceeds from every pair sold is donated to VSA's Every Last Vote Fund. Our first Karayuma collab sold out super fast. So if you want a pair for yourself or the Love It fan in your life. God help you. Make sure to snag one now. <laughs> they make the perfect gift for the holiday season with... Free returns. Just head to crooked.com slash store. That's crooked.com slash store. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. 
even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Anna Holmes and Aaron Ryan, welcome to Offline. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me too. So uh, some of my favorite writers and people come from Jezebel. One is sitting across from me. Uh, Kara Brown is a good friend who also hosted a Crooked Pod. I was lucky enough to talk to Gia Tolentino for the very first episode of this show. Um, Mm. But because I was chained to a desk writing speeches uh, during the Obama years. I kind of miss the dawn of the digital media era uh, (laughs) in which Jezebel played a central role. Anna, I know that your vision for Jezebel was in many ways shaped by your time working at Glamour, but what did you want readers to take away from the site when you first started it in 2007? Uh, I wanted them to know that there were other young women like them. And maybe I shouldn't say young women because we had readers who were at the time, older than I am now, and I'm not telling you how old I am. But uh, <laughs> I was, I was in my, I was in my mid 30s, and and I was looking to try and bring in an audience that you know was as young as let's say 18 and going up into their 50s. But I, I to back up and answer your question with more specificity, I wanted the readers and the guests. I'd say I describe guests as being. Um, people who stumbled upon the site and hadn't decided to stay yet Mm. Uh, to know that there were other young women like them who cared about a myriad of things could walk and chew gum at the same time um, who cared about politics and pop culture and race and the intersection between all of those things. And the other thing I wanted was to create a kind of 21st century version of sassy magazine, even though sassy magazine was for teenage girls. um, And we were doing uh, a publication that was for, as I said, older um, older young women <laughs> or older women, but that it, that it would have a personality to it and that uh, readers would identify with it and with the writers in such a way that they felt compelled to come back or compelled to stay. It's interesting too, because I think people, people who are younger right now might not realize that back then, all the way back in 2007, um, <laughs> w- women's media didn't have that. Right. Like that wasn't what what you guys were trying to do was was unique and different at the time. Right. It was unique. Well, it was it wasn't it wasn't it was unique in the sense that we had the support of a, of a for profit company, you know, mm. who paid us salaries and had we had resources like tech people and licenses to photo agencies and et cetera, et cetera. Um, there were what I would call feminist blogs that existed at the time. And I'm sure you're familiar with a bunch of them. They were to my mind, more labors of love. They didn't have the privileges that we had at Jezebel in terms of um, uh, resources and infrastructure and potential for growth. Uh, and there were certainly women's magazines that were not in the glamour mold, like Bust or Bitch, uh, that covered um, popular culture and politics through a gender and racial lens. But there wasn't really anything in terms of um, a popular blog that was taking on those sorts of conversations. Aaron, why do you think it took off so fast? 
I think for the reasons that Anna mentioned, I, w- I started as a reader in, in 2008 during the primaries. Mm-hmm. It was, it's a shame that you missed that time. Um, <laughs> yes, it I missed is. all of it. I, <laughs> it's a really a shame because during the Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama primary battle in 2008, it was, Jezebel was lit. It was, <laughs> it was so, it was so irreverent. I, I found it, um, I found it because uh, two of the the site's original writers started a controversy and it made it, it ended up on Huffington Post and I was like these ladies sound cool even though <laughs> what they said was not cool I was like I think they would be my friends um I started reading the website and it was very like irreverent uh it wasn't condescending it was honest it was it was like not afraid to pick I mean it, I don't want to say pick fights it wasn't afraid to like get in there mm. it wasn't afraid to kind of be a little bit confrontational and I loved it. And there was also a commenting community attached to it that was really active and vibrant. And every single article was, would be hilarious. And at the end, there would be all these comments that were super funny or thoughtful or in, incisive. Or And there would be arguments. And it was just so entertaining. And I worked at a bank at the time. And I... Uh, liked Jezebel way more than I liked my job. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna ask Anna, like the, the idea that readers could communicate directly with writers and each other in a comment section was fairly new back then. How much did that factor into your thinking about what you wanted the site to be in those early days? That is a great question, and I'm not sure that I did factor that in because I don't know that I understood the. Um, importance that the commenter community would have on the site and the influence they would have on how we wrote what we wrote and what we wrote. And, you know, I, I I think we were very hesitant to admit that they were so empowered or that they were so powerful. But when I started the site, you know, the the comments felt like they were something that happened on blogs. Um, that they were secondary. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I thought of them as being secondary on Jezebel until I realized that they were almost as primary as the actual um, work of the writers and editors that got paid to do that. You know, it's, it's funny when Aaron talks about 2008 and the fights that broke out, maybe arguments is a better word, between commenters and between and among editors and commenters about the Democratic primary um, there wasn't so much fighting about, uh, listen, the site was very pro-Obama. Like, it just was. There were, there were, there were, we were not trying to be fair and balanced. <laughs> we were all in for, in for President Obama. Um, but yet there would still be kind of skirmishes that would break out, particularly when Hillary was still in the running for the nomination. And Aaron, um, the fact that that drew Aaron's attention, I think, is, is representative or, reflect, or reflects what was happening with a lot of our readers, which is that they were interested in a place where they could talk about politics and where you could talk about politics and be very funny about it as well. Uh, and, and not to like blow smoke up Aaron's ass, but she was one of the funniest. <laughs> I know that. I know that. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was also a place where our opinions on politics was taken seriously. I feel like mm-hmm. so much political media was just a bunch of old smarmy white guys mm. that, haven't really probably had a conversation with anybody under 30 for a really long time. Or, you know, I guess New York City, I guess regular 30 is New York City 40. But you know what I mean? Like it was, it was, it lacked a a youthful sensibility. And it was almost like at Jezebel during that time and after, but specifically that's what drew me to it, was it was like our opinions and our experiences were taken seriously as ways to contribute to a political conversation. What Mm -hmm. made you, what made you take the leap 
from I hadn't realized by the way you until t- I, this, I, I knew you, you didn't know of this. course I knew you worked at Jezebel but I didn't and I knew you worked at the bank too but I didn't know that the leap from the bank to Jezebel was because you were like a commenter who then became a staffer yeah so this is one thing that I think I don't think Jezebel's totally unique in it but it it's one of the places that did this the most. Um, there were like little, I think, there were like little extra jobs that's, that active commenters were given on the site. Like a comment moderator was picked from the large group of commenters. And then she wrote sometimes on the website under her commenter name. And um, like weekend shifts were sometimes picked up by people who were like trusted commenters or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and I was like asked to just try out uh, a Sunday shift by uh, Anna's successor, Jessica Cohen. And so I did, and I ended up working like Sundays. I got paid $100 to <laughs> That's write. That's it? I got paid $100, $100 a Sunday. And I would wake up at 6 in the morning, and I would post until like every half an hour until the posting day was done. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of posting. I know. Some of it was like, oh, here's a funny picture from AP and I here's some commentary on the picture, whatever. And then I would like go to bed and wake up and go to my bank job. And I did that for like a year. And I was like, I really hate my bank job and I really like writing. So I asked to be hired full time and I didn't look back. I moved from Chicago to do this. Like I did, like it changed my whole. What was it like being on the other side? As a, a <laughs> writer? Yeah. Um, I... I think the transition was slow because if there was a period of time where I was like doing both things, I had a lot of sympathy for the staff and how um, entitled some of the commenters felt to like controlling the content of the site. Like it was almost um, like a fandom sort of, you know, how people (laughs) who are like really into something feel like betrayed when they change you know, the race of one of the Marvel characters. You know, it, yeah. it almost felt like a, a fandom, like where if somebody wrote something that a reader did not agree with exactly, they would take it as an affront because they saw the website as something that was supposed to be their personal voice box. And that's not really possible to do. And that's not really fair to expect writers to do that. Um, and uh, you're, you and look- lo and behold, that's what the entire internet is today. <laughs> Yes, exactly. 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 (laughs) Well, Anna, you've talked about sort of the constant struggle of feeling politically and personally in agreement with some commenters, but alienated by their rhetoric. And this is something I always wrestle with when I'm following some progressives on social media, mainly because I'm always worrying about like, what's the most effective way to persuade someone on some political issue? But what was that tension like for you sort of running Jezebel? Well, I'm not, I've never worked in politics and um, I've never done anything close to what you have done, John, but I definitely felt that because I knew that there were people who were reading the site, people who were watching, who were not commenting, um, and that we were having some influence in the culture, which, which it came, it took a while for me to realize that, um, that there were ways to get at one's point across and rhetoric to use that wasn't always so alienating. And I did feel sometimes that, um, the tone of the comments on the site were alienating, uh, not just to me. And again, I was uh, an ideological ally, but to some of our readers, I didn't want to bring in Fox news readers. That's not what I was concerned about. But, um, because there was often bad faith assumed on the part of the editors, writers, and I guess, you know, going the other direction, the commenters, um, the tone often felt somewhat, um, tense to me looking back on it. 
I realized that that was for the most part a plus, you know, that we were engaged in passionate <laughs> conversations, but being on the site as like a site lead and editing the copy and reading the comments and having to moderate them. Um, it, 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 I was always in the moment, but also aware of the moment and aware of the ways in which, um, what we were saying and what the commenters were saying might be taken um, the wrong way or just might be turning people off. This was before trolls though. I'm not saying trolls didn't exist on the internet, but like mm. for the most, for the most part the commenters were irritating, were irritating because they were over the top in their rhetoric, but we were not having outsiders quote unquote coming in and trolling, or if they did, they were banned immediately. The comment section was moderated. So it did feel like a protected space. And within that protected space, there was a lot of sturm and drang, but it was still felt like a protected space. And maybe Erin can talk more about this because she was in the comments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I was, Anna, I was going to ask you if you think your time, like kind of developing an awareness of how to get things across without pissing people off, has given you kind of like a, a like you you have kind of a a reflex when you see something that was worded that, where you agree with in principle but was worded wrong where you you you're, you almost are like oh I know how they should have said that to not make people mad like yeah. do do you feel like you have that so I feel infected by it well yeah I I mean when you use the word infected I think that that's a pretty that's a good word to use because I don't always think that's a good thing I think I, I think that the fact that I'm constantly um uh wondering how this or that or the other is going to be taken by this or that or the other constituency, um, for lack of a better word, uh, is, is, has hampered me in some ways as a writer and as an editor. I'm, I'm oftentimes thinking too much about how something might be, um, received or who might get mad or how they might get, how, how they might get mad and in what ways they might express that anger. Um, so I'm not sure if that's what you meant, Aaron, when you used the word infected, but it has definitely put a damper on how I think about my own writing. It can be like, I think it, trained us to, to kind of defang some of the things that we were going to say. I think it infected you, Aaron, in a way that I recognized, like when you started doing stuff for Crooked, because like so many of us that are hosts here do have backgrounds in politics. Mm -hmm. But in you, I was like, oh, that's someone who like really has something to say and will say things that are controversial, but knows how to say them in a way that is like funny and sharp and biting, but is like thinking about, as you said, Anna, the various constituencies, which again, I think about all the time and that's because of politics and my background in politics. Mm -hmm. But there are also times I wish I did a little less of that too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, at its best, it's like, oh, I like got that in there. I like got that really in like intense opinion. I got it across. People understood what I meant, didn't read it in bad faith. That's like, that's it at its best. At its worst, I find myself almost writing in a legalese that is meant to cover every possible thing, you know, like uh, not leave anybody out or make sure that I'm making a point that when I say this, I don't mean this group of people when any reasonable yeah. person would read it and not unless they were looking for a reason to get mad. Any reason Which many person. people are. <laughs> I know, exactly. I, and I think that sometimes, and, and Anna, you wrote a lot about this in your piece for The New Yorker. Um, sometimes I think people would come to Jezebel because they were looking for fodder to get charged up. And charged up doesn't necessarily mean mad, but it does in some cases mean mad. And sometimes I think that people just came to the site 
and commenters were like ready to be mad at something mm. without really giving it a chance and trying to find the way to justify being mad at something. It's yeah. also easier for them to be mad at the writers on the site than it is. For, well, it's easier for them to express that and to feel like maybe they are having an, an effect than it is for them to be mad at concepts or things that feel beyond our control. For example, the erosion of reproductive rights, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's, a, that's a much more amorphous big thing with no one person to, to get angry at. So the, so the, you know, there was, I'm sorry to go on about this, but there no, was a, no, the, I'm- there was a dissertation that, and I mentioned it in the New Yorker piece, um, by a woman who focused solely on the Jezebel comments, I think for the first three or four years that the site was around, uh, and she described, she used a phrase, uh, the phrase negotiating feminism in the Jezebel comments, which is, I think, what was going on. I think mm. that that's a perfect way of putting it because there was not just negotiation on, there was there was policing <laughs> of one another and of, and of the site's writers and, and readers. But it did, you know, it, again, in the moment it may have felt uncomfortable, but it was building to a conversation and perhaps, you know, um, a way forward in terms of how we talk about gender politics. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. The New Yorker piece was fantastic, and and Aaron, you were quoted in as well. It's partly response to Ben Smith's take on Jezebel uh, in his book Traffic, um, which I've talked to him about on the show. And a central question you wrestle with in the piece is what part, if any, Jezebel may have played in the evolution of derisive online discourse. Um, yeah, where'd you come down on that? Um, I came down on the side of I don't know how we could possibly qualify or quantify that. And also, I don't think that Jezebel was unique in any way whatsoever in terms of how it influenced discourse online, particularly on social media. I think maybe, well, Ben seemed to be saying that in his op-ed. He didn't Mm -hmm. really say that in his book. But the reason I took issue with the op-ed is because it did feel like he was blaming Jezebel for any number of things that you could blame any number of sites for. Um, And, and I, you know, I, I, 
I think that he's onto something though, not, not with regards to Jezebel, but with regards to comments and the ways in which they were, as he put it, proto social media. So there was something happening in the community of the comments that was happening in other communities of comments on other websites that you then saw replicated on Twitter and on Facebook. But I don't think it was specific to Jezebel. I just, I'm not sure why he, he pinned it on the site. It just, it's very, I mean, it's, it's almost kind of flattering that the idea that we had that much power, (laughs) but, but I don't think that we did. Um, and, you know, Aaron, jump in, because I, I don't know that you and I have talked specifically about what you thought of his piece. Um, I think that it's it's a pretty um, it's pretty reliable that a man is going to interpret passion from a woman as anger. Uh, that's that's a pretty common misconception. All all intense emotion from a woman is anger. Um, mm-hmm. And and I thought that that was it was a little bit I don't want to say hacky because I don't think Ben's a hack, but I thought that that specific conclusion is a little bit hack. Um, I also think that there were plenty of other places online that were a lot angrier at the time. Mm-hmm. Like I, I honestly had attributed to Tumblr. Tumblr mm-hmm. between like 2009 and 2016 was a real like social justice warrior policing. Oh, I also place. missed that. I'd had no idea. It was yeah. I had <laughs> I was on Tumblr, and part of the reason was because I was bored at work and I didn't want to do my job. And part of it was because a lot of people that I had met from Jezebel were also on Tumblr. And so there were like these little clicks within Tumblr that people, but there was so much more anger over there than there were there ever was on yeah. like Gawker Media websites. I, I found in Ben's analysis of the situation, the, the what you said, Anna, about how um, comment section was like the proto-social media. Like I found that very insightful. Though I was mm-hmm. wondering like, why, I mean, the same was true in the Gawker comments and and other sort of digital media publications at the time too. And I'm I wonder if he if he landed on Jezebel, right? There could be uh, reasons because he's a, just a, a white guy doing it. But it also could be I was I was wondering if that like you guys were almost more explicitly political than yes. a Gawker or than some of the other Gawker properties. Absolutely. And I was just gonna I was just gonna say that. I mean, when when you looked at the comments, at least on Gawker.com, and I can't speak for the comments on the other Gawker media properties because I wasn't paying attention to them, but on Gawker, who was to whom we were most closely related, they were much more, you know, the commenters were much they were snarky, but they were kind of removed and cool. Mm. Um, the site itself, Gawker.com, didn't tend to uh, express political opinions. Um, its writers didn't ex- tend to express political opinions, or if they did, they didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily accompanied by emotion or, 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 um, expressions of irritation, frustration, anger, what, what have you. We were much on Jezebel, much more straightforward about that stuff. So I think that the tenor of the comments on Jezebel were different than the ones you saw on Gawker were different than the ones you saw on Wonquette, which was a you know, blog oh, about yeah. politics. Um, a very funny one, I, I might add, uh, so it's it's possible that Ben is is thinking or was thinking of things through the lens of New York media guy who was paying attention to you know Gawker Media and a couple other blog networks, um, but not things like you know as Aaron just pointed out Tumblr, um, and that in that in that kind of sphere um, media sphere yes Jezebel stood out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would also add. Um- that I think that that Jezebel is writing about, we're writing about politics, but the way that politics impacted women at the time was a lot of times in negative ways. So Mm -hmm. like we're writing about things that a reasonable person would become angry about. 
So like, why yeah. is that noteworthy that we wrote about things that would should make someone angry and then people got angry? Well, the other, the other thought that kept running through my mind reading all this was, as opposed to like Jezebel contributing to what would later become sort of the complete mess of social media, it seems like social media is so much worse <laughs> than, than any of the sort of digital media bloggish properties, the comment sections back then. I mean, social media is like the comment section come to life. But now I feel like it has, you know, the comment section became social media and then social media started sort of eating away at the line between journalism and comments. And now that line is, you almost can't see that line at all because there's still journalists posting on social media, obviously. But then there's so many people whose job is just like, I'm a pundit. I, I just talk on social media. I'm just a personality. Yeah. And I wonder if you think that's, I mean, I, I feel like it's a bad development, but I don't know what you guys think. Like hearing you talk, Anna, about this like controlled environment where there's negotiating feminism in the comments and it is somewhat mm -hmm. police, but you're letting people do it. It, it, it sounds it like the good pretty, old days. It was pretty policed. It was like, it wasn't like, you know, woo, woo, you're under arrest. <laughs> but it was like, there were like, there were distinct rules, you know, like we had a, I think when, Annie, when you were at the helm, it was like, there was a no body snarking rule. So mm -hmm. if there was an article about someone, you couldn't say something shitty about their body, whether it was a big body or a small body, you just, no body snarking. And there was another one that was like, you can't, I, I, the, anyway, there was a bunch of different, the nobody snarking one stood out to me because it really put up guardrails for like how the comments could go. And if you broke one of the commenting rules, you could just get banned yeah, um, temporarily or permanently. And that putting those guardrails up required like human labor. You know, there was at one time, and this was after you were gone, Anna, there were like five comment moderators that we were we were going wow. through and like they're making sure that like, okay, we got to bounce this one down. We got to block this person um, because we also had more trolls at the time. But mm. in order yeah. for that, in order for that to exist, you need people that are like working and like sifting through it by hand. You can't do it with a machine. You can't do it. You can't just like do it with the honor system. You have to have somebody actively in there that's like, all right, this is a rule. You broke it. You're out. Anna, what is it? What's your view on uh, the fact that these, a lot of these guardrails have fallen away now? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know that this is a good answer to your question, but so I left the site in 2010. I was very exhausted. And in part, I was exhausted because of the moderation of the comments. I then migrated to Twitter immediately. Like I went from like running Jezebel to spending all my days on Twitter and then mm. writing here and there for different publications. But I was really obsessed with Twitter. And I could see, maybe not at the time consciously, but I could see the ways in which commenting culture online was uh, influencing Twitter. Um, but I then left Twitter, which is to say that I stopped engaging with it about four years after I started. So this would have been in 2014, because the tenor of the co commentary on Twitter became very toxic to me uh, in, 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 in a way that was not dissimilar from the Jezebel comments becoming more and more and more difficult for me to handle. Twitter commentary and rhetoric became more difficult for me to handle. And what it seemed, it seemed to me that there were just certain people, not maybe not that many in the aggregate, but who liked causing trouble on Twitter. I think we all know who we've all experienced <laughs> folks like that. Um, I'm now kind of, uh, I'm not sure how to answer the question, except that, um, again, it was a protected space on Jezebel. It was highly, highly, highly irritating at times to have to moderate them, but at least there was, we had some measure of control. 
Erin mentioned in her piece about Jezebel something called disemvoweling. This is when someone <laughs> this is when someone made an obnoxious comment and instead of banning them, you just pressed a button and took all the vowels out of their out yeah. of their <laughs> And when you saw wow. one, when you saw it was like a, a tarring and feathering, like a digital <laughs> yes. tarring and feathering. Yes, because everyone would gather around, I mean, digitally gather around and try to figure out what the comment was and be like, "Uh-oh." That's so funny. Yeah. yeah. It, well, it was it was almost worse than having the person banned or having the comment deleted, which we didn't tend to do. We didn't tend to delete comments because yeah, it did attract attention, but it was also really fun. It was so much fun to do it. I loved it. <laughs> That's like a proto quote tweet or a, a screenshot of a tweet and then yeah, you, and everyone yeah, just sort yeah. of like piles on. So Jezebel had to shut down last week for the, the same reason. Uh, a lot of digital media outlets have had to shut down or downsize recently. Anna, how optimistic are you that someone will eventually figure out a more sustainable business model for the kind of written content that Jezebel did? Well, let me first say that I don't know that it had to shut down. Like, I, mm. I don't know the ins and outs of what happened but it seems to me from what i've heard from what i've heard from the staff not directly but from the staff on the site that they felt very strongly that the site had been mismanaged by the company that owned it mm. um, again i didn't work for the site i have not spoken to the staffers directly but i i guess i i have to keep reminding myself um when talking about the end of the site that it maybe didn't have to happen mm. um so that's the first thing I just want to get across. The second thing I want to get across is that I'm not a business person. So I kind of feel like I'm not a good person to answer the question about what the future is. Uh, there, well, for, for sites or for content like that that you found on Jezebel, you know, one of my former staffers said, well, maybe Jezebel was a victim of its own success, that, you know, it um, changed the culture enough and its writers and editors and readers moved on and moved into positions in traditional uh, mainstream media in such a way that you see those conversations happening all over the place, as opposed, as opposed to one particular location, in, in this sense, Jezebel. But I do think it seems to me from what I've heard is that people have a hard time getting advertisers to put advertising against um, stories uh, or sites that have uh, content around uh, sexual assault or abortion rights or what have you. Uh, I would hope that we were, that we are um, advanced enough um, and, and, and savvy enough media consumers that, uh, that advertisers would not see those things as being, um, risky to them, um, that, let me put it this way. There was a period of time when I was at Jezebel where I got the sense that the advertising folks at Gawker Media were having a hard time selling advertising mm -hmm. against it. Mm. I had like some sympathy for them, not a lot because what I, how I felt and what I felt was that I didn't know how we, meaning the staff could have created a more loyal, educated or brought in a more loyal, educated audience with disposable income of, of, of women. They were on the site all day long, refreshing it all day long. Again, this is really before social media. So people were typing in the URL Jezebel and hitting refresh. Mm. Uh, if they, if they, meaning the ad sales folks wanted to have that sort of audience, you know, that they could sell advertisers on, whether that was makeup advertising or television advertising, you know, like about TV shows, um, Again, I don't know how we could have engineered it better. And it wasn't engineered. It was organic, which made it even more powerful in my mind. I don't know what the, you know, what, what the readers thought about the advertising that did show up on there. Sometimes it was a little weird. Um, it would oftentimes be 
packaged or rather it, the advertiser would buy ad, ad space on Gawker and then we would get oh, the yeah. same ads. Um, I don't know what you call that, but uh, there was, there was oftentimes there was advertising that felt a little um, off brand, but I, I didn't get the sense that, that um, I'm trying to think how to put this. Cause I don't want to put it all on the advertising people at Gawker media. I think I want to put it all on the advertising industry and their lack of imagination. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what young women were interested in talking about and the ways in which they wanted to talk about it and the places they went in order to talk about it. Mm. Uh, last question for both of you. Jezebel challenged a lot of institutions that weren't used to being challenged, still need challenging. We are also now in a period where trust in institutions uh, has never been lower, especially media. And that's obviously causing all sorts of other problems. If you were starting Jezebel or another outlet like it today, how would that factor into uh, your thinking? And, and what are some ways you think about dealing with that dynamic today? Wow. I mean, that's a really tough question. Um, and I haven't thought about it <laughs> before you just asked it. So you got <laughs> to give me a moment. I mean, if okay. I were to start Jezebel today, how would I factor in the fact that there's so much disinformation and so much misinformation? It's that, um, and it's also just this push and pull of like, you know, and this is a sort of a progressive thing, right? You're challenging institutions, you're holding power to mm -hmm, account, right? Mm -hmm. And then it can go so far in the other direction that suddenly everyone's like, well, now I don't believe anything. And now yeah. I don't trust any institution. And then you have chaos, which is, I feel like, what we're heading towards. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was uh, number two on the masthead at Jezebel from like 20... 13 until late 2015 and I I would imagine that the way that we like chose and assigned stories at that point was different even when Anna started it and part of the reason mm -hmm. was because even then I mean we were ramping up to 2016 Trump was never gonna win right. you know the el the escalator thing had already happened we were like what an idiot he's hiring people to show up to his rallies um, but even then like disinfo and misinfo was kind of ramping up. And I found that we sort of had to put in some positive stories, even though they were not as fun to write. Mm. Like it's way fun to write. A, it's way more fun to write a takedown. It's way more fun to like, you know, be kind of like snarky about a politician that everybody likes. And well, yeah, well, what about this? But um, we had to do some like stories that were a little bit more like get a load of these women who are like running for office for the first time and they're, they all sound really cool. One of them in one of the articles was Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> um, <laughs> whoopsie. Good, um, good job, Eric. Yeah. I'm a news. She had a brief normal seeming period. <laughs> I'm a news genius. Um, but we did, we did have to make calls where we're like, okay, how do we like write about politics in a way that isn't just relentlessly doom and gloom can we find something to celebrate can we find something to be positive about but not necessarily it it's also like real it's it's really cringe to be like a fangirl of politics yeah and i feel like during that era we were trying to still navigate how do you be enthusiastic about the work a politician is doing without veering into like daddy cuomo ism <laughs> yeah. and th there's and i think right that i look back on some of the stuff that was written when I was doing like the running politics at Jezebel and it was like, some of it just didn't quite work. It was cringe. It went too far to the celebratory side. Mm. But what were, was happening at the time was there was so much bad shit happening all the time that it was like, okay, how do we, 
okay, who are we going to be happy about today? Like, yeah. who, who am I going to write? Some, who, who am I going to write something excited? Who, who am I going to be excited about today? And because I, I think that like our readers got kind of beaten down by feeling like it was just a relentless stream of bad news. Yeah. Hmm. You know, it's funny because when, when I think about misinformation or disinformation, I think about the ways in which um, early Jezebel treated women's media. Now, I mean, on the scale of things that are important to the survival of democracy, women's media is further down here <laughs> than, than, let's say, I don't know, uh, uh, national newspapers. But, um, well, at least I think so. I'm, I'm going to get yelled at. See, that's what's going to happen. I said that. <laughs> I'm going to get yelled at. But, what about uh, Teen Vogue? I yes, could be the exactly. comment section for you, Anna. Yeah, I'll, you be, I'll be your bad faith machine. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I'm going to hold you to that. But, you know, part of what we did with, with women's media in the beginning was we called out the ways in which it was engaging in misinformation and disinformation. That was part of what was animating our anger about um, the culture at the time. And so I'm not sure this is answering your question, Don, but the idea that we would maybe lean into discussions of misinformation or disinformation as it's happening. Um, and I'm not talking about at the time that I ran the site, but, you know, going forward in those years uh, when, um, well, when Aaron was there, before Aaron was there on staff, after Aaron was there, maybe that would be something I would have attempted to do mm-hmm. to not to embrace disinformation, but to talk about it openly. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, to do so might increase people's disbelief or trust in media outlets. It yeah. might have a bad, a bad effect. So I'm not, I'm not, I think it's a great question and I'm not sure I have a good answer for it, but, um, uh, and, and you know, I'm also not immune to as someone who comes from a journalism background and, you know, uh, understands for the most part, the ways that publications and news outlets work. Um, as I've gotten older, I think the cacophony of, of things going on around us um, has has made me a little less credulous about the things that I read mm-hmm. <laughs> on the internet. I hate to say it. But yeah. yeah. I would say if I was trying to set up a print Jezebel-like publication, um, one of the things that I would try to get into more is like a peek under the hood at how like journalism and media works in general mm. and like mm-hmm. make it really conscious like – uh, most people don't know what beet sweetening is. So if you see, yeah. if you read like that Jeff Bezos, uh, Lauren Sanchez profile oh in Vogue was like an obvious, okay, why are they putting them in Vogue? They're not attractive mm-hmm. people and those pictures are weird. <laughs> they look like AI pictures. Really. Yeah, it's really weird. I feel, I, we, we talked about this on Hysteria this morning and like I felt like I was in a Gadzook store. Remember that mall store? <laughs> it's just like, what is this? But I feel like if people understood like, okay, Vogue is a magazine that needs advertising. Jeff Bezos controls a company that has so much advertising money. This is what this is like maybe one of the reasons why this is happening. Or like, why was there a weird, I don't know, if there was like a profile of Kellyanne Conway in the Washington Post, huh, why would they do that? Probably because somebody on staff is using her for a really important source and this is a way to do it. So just basic stuff. Like, um, of course, publications sometimes do things that don't make sense on the surface for background reasons. And getting into those background reasons, I think is like super interesting. It's like good to know why things work the way they work anyway. And it also kind of indulges... Uh, the conspiracy mind that we all have at this yeah. point. 
But it, it indulges it in a way that's like, no, there are things going on that you don't see, but this is what they are. Yeah. It's not like, you know, QAnon, uh, you no. know, Robert F. Kennedy is not going to save you from vaccines. It's like the media works a specific way. The information you get goes through a process before it gets to you. Um, and another thing, like I remember during like a lot of the Me Too stuff and, and Jezebel was publishing Me Too style stories about powerful men before it was cool. I'll say that that is one way that mm -hmm. it was a a pioneer. But I think a lot of people reading the stories would say like, oh, there's only like two things in this article. And I don't think a lot of readers understand that like when something gets published on a website that has a fact checking process or like a journalistic process to it, there's always more than can be printed. Yeah. Yes. And like, and it's just like, you know, the Louis C.K. stuff that ran in the New York Times. People were like, I don't know. Why is that a big deal? Well, there was more. Mm -hmm. There was more that they weren't able to totally nail down. And that sort of information, I think, gives you more literacy when it comes to just encountering the media, the world, whether it's it's true information or disinformation or mainstream media or like more niche media. Yeah. No, I think those. Look, I asked the question. It's a very tough question because uh, I have not answered it. And I think about it all the time at Crooked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think it's a real it's a tough one. And I do think that it's it's fantastic that Jezebel gave people a space to be angry. But you also want to try to, like, ensure that people have agency. Right. And, and to, like, do something about that anger and giving people a space to have the conversation. Right. That is. Yeah whether it's guardrails, lightly policed, whatever you want to call it, it just it seems like it's the best you can do, especially in media, is like give people the space to have the conversation and mm -hmm. to have it honestly with each other. And sometimes to have it, um, to have it with humor. I mean, I just, I, yeah. I can't, I, I, a lot of, a lot of the kind of post Jezebel um, commentary that I've seen has been focused well, and, and even my piece <laughs> for the New Yorker was focused on the idea of Jezebel and its expression of anger. One thing I don't think that we've gotten into enough, we over the, all these conversations is just how funny the mm. writers were and how much fun we had and then how funny the commenters were. And I hate to keep bringing it back to Erin because she was one of many who were very funny, but she's a good example. Um, we had a lot of fun on that website. And so one of the commenters, you know, Anna, went on to be the head writer of SNL. See, L literally, <laughs> literally. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was in the commenting community at Jezebel, not under her real name. And mm -hmm. uh, I interviewed her not long ago and we talked about mm -hmm. it a little bit. But yeah. And her, and her real name is what? what Anna is Dresden. Uh, Anna yeah. Dresden. Okay. Yep. There's lots of Annas. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really, really, really fun as much as I wanted to tear my hair out. And so um, I, I, I do think it's important. I want people I want people to remember it in that way as well. Yeah, that's important. Uh, Anna Holmes and Aaron Ryan. Thanks for uh, chatting about Jezebel with me. This was fantastic. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau, along with Max Fisher. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick-Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos provide audio support to the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Madeline Herringer, Reed Charlin, and Andy Taft for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Delon Villanueva, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. 
Oh, honey, who's gonna wanna buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.